Go ahead and open your Bibles to John 10, verses 9 through 11. This is going to be our main passage, our main text tonight uh, for our Good Friday service. And I just want you to find that and hold your place there for just a moment. Uh, While you're doing that, I want to say welcome. Welcome to everyone who's here with us in person. Welcome to everyone who's joining us online. We're so glad that you're participating in our Good Friday service here at Mount Pleasant. We're so excited for you to be here. Uh, My name is Andrew Philbeck. I'm the group's pastor here, and I'm glad that I get the opportunity to speak with you tonight as we celebrate Jesus. Uh, This is actually the second part of a brief series that we're calling Promise Fulfilled. Uh, One of the things that we've been doing in the days leading up to Easter through a series of short devotions on social media is highlighting a number of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his life. And there are many more than the ones that we chose, of course, but we thought that this would be a great way for us and uh, people around the community to prepare for the Easter holiday. And what we're doing in this series is looking at three things Jesus prophesied and then fulfilled in his own life. Last week, our high school pastor, Matt Pineda, highlighted the fact that Jesus always knew that he would be betrayed and abandoned by his followers. And he didn't just know it, he he told his followers that this would happen ahead of time. He told them that one of them would betray him and everyone else would fall away. But the main point of our time together last week wasn't so much the betrayal and the abandonment of Jesus, but his faithfulness in the face of those things. We looked at the fact that he knew it was going to happen and he still washed their feet. He knew what they were going to do and he still prayed for them. He still let them serve and even lead. Tonight, we're focusing on the fact that Jesus knew, always knew, that he came to earth to die. And it's more than just the consequence of him living a human life. His death was prophesied by him in advance. Uh, There are lots of examples of this in the Gospels, but I'm going to give you just one quick one from Mark's Gospel. Chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. One of Jesus' most consistent references to himself is that title, Son of Man. So we see in this passage, he speaks clearly, clearly about what is going to happen to him. Now, I wanted to read that passage to you before we looked at our main text tonight, because even though the text that we're looking at does have a reference to the sacrifice Jesus will make, it's not nearly as clear and direct as it is in that passage and in other parts of Scripture. So uh, having said all that, I want to ask you if you're able to please stand with me for the reading of God's word. If you're visiting with us tonight, this is something we do in all of our weekend services. We stand as a way to honor and show reverence to the word of God. I'm going to read uh, John 10 verses 9 through 11. You can follow along while I read aloud. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. You may be seated. We always ask for God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. 
Now, just like last weekend, we talked about the betrayal Jesus experienced, but focused on his great faithfulness. What we're doing in our time together tonight is talking about the death of Jesus, but focusing on what he says in John 10, 10, the rich and satisfying life he wants us to experience. You may be more familiar with it described as an abundant life. Uh, I don't remember where I was exactly or how old I was uh, when I first heard um, a preacher, a speaker talk about what he called the upside down way of God. Now, this certainly was not something unique to him. It was not something that he thought up on his own. When you read through the Bible, uh, you see the reality of this all throughout Scripture. It really just comes down to kind of whatever you want to call it. I've seen it referred to as the upside down kingdom. I've read it referred to as the great reversal. There's lots of different things people use to classify it. But it was a topic that, that just struck me and has always stayed with me. It's one of my favorite things about what we see in Scripture and about the way that God works. And we know in Isaiah 55, for example, God says that his ways are not our ways. His, his thoughts are not our thoughts. Uh, but this upside-down way of God, it's more than God just doing things differently because he's God and he's all-knowing and all-powerful. It's him doing things in a way that seems backwards to us. As I said a moment ago, this is something we see all throughout Scripture. I mean, it makes sense for a great nation to be built by the strongest people, maybe, maybe the most educated people, maybe the, the people that are able to conquer the most and have the most victories in battle, uh, maybe just the largest number of people. That's what makes them the most powerful. But God flips over what makes sense by intentionally working through the small, the unknown, and the weak. I mean, here's, here's an example. It's a very well-known story. Uh, God tells one of his prophets, a man named Samuel, that he needs to go and appoint, anoint rather, a new king for Israel. Samuel obeys. He goes to the home of a man named Jesse. And when Jesse hears why the prophet is there, he doesn't even hesitate. He doesn't think twice. He brings out his oldest son. This is what made sense. The oldest son was the favorite. The oldest son inherited the most from the family. This was just the way things Things worked back then. It was so ingrained that even the prophet didn't think twice about it. This is what we read. It says, when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab, that's Jesse's oldest son, and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. It was obvious. It was obvious to him that this is how things were going to work. But God wanted to do things differently. And if you're familiar with this story, you know that all of Jesse's sons are brought out one by one, and they're all rejected one by one until the youngest, which makes him the least likely, is chosen, a boy named David. Now, that's just one story, but when you read through the Bible, you see this pattern where God chooses the youngest over the oldest, the weakest over the strongest, the unappreciated over the favorite, and he does it time and time again. Even when it comes to the nation of Israel as a whole, this is, this is the nation described as God's chosen people. But even with that title, this is what we read. The Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you, and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. 
God did not choose Israel because they were the biggest. And if they were the biggest, then they certainly weren't the strongest. They were a small, out-of-the-way nation when compared to the empires around them at that time. And what God did was the opposite of what anyone else would have done. He chose them. Think of it like this. Imagine, imagine that you're back in school or in school, depending on how old you are. You're in the gym and uh, someone has decided that you're going to play a pickup game of basketball. I'm sure all of you at least know what this is like to some degree. Uh, you, you line up against the wall, you have the two team captains, and they take turns picking the kids that are going to be on their team. Now, for some of you, this might actually bring back fond memories because you were always chosen first. You know, you were taller, you were athletic, and that was just the way that it was. Maybe for some of you, it brings back fond memories because you can't play basketball anymore, but you still love to torture your kids and grandkids with how good you were back in the day kind of stories. I don't know. Uh, but the chances are for others, while these memories, they may not be horrible, they're probably not the greatest because you weren't the tallest, you weren't the fastest, you weren't the most athletic, and so you were always chosen towards the end or even last. Well, the way God works is like a captain looking at the kids for a game of basketball and picking the shortest and the slowest kid first. And it sounds bizarre. It doesn't make sense on paper, but over and over again, we see in scripture, God choosing the least likely person, the least likely nation, the least likely plan to succeed in order to accomplish whatever it is he wants to accomplish. It's upside down. And listen, because God actually does more than just that. And this is one of one of the greatest things we need to always understand and remember about God because it reveals so much of his character. He doesn't just sit up in heaven and kind of frustrate things on earth by, by choosing the small, the weak, and the forgotten. What he does is he comes to earth and he continues to work that way even in his own life. This is a familiar description that we get of Jesus from the book of Philippians. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. It's, it's that criminal's death on the cross that we gather here tonight to celebrate. And it's the ultimate example of the upside-down way of God. Because through the defeat and death of Jesus... We experience victory, and we experience life. And this is backwards. You don't, you don't win by surrendering. When you play sports, your coach, your leader, doesn't walk over to the other team before the game even starts, forfeit the game, and then come back to you and say, hey, don't worry, this was actually the best thing that we could have done. In fact, we're actually winners now. That's not how it works. That's not how it works in the real world. But that's how it works with God. He died so that we could live. Now, in our main passage, we, we read that Jesus' purpose was to give us a rich and satisfying life. And there are two parts to this. There are two parts to this. We can't ignore either one of them. One part, one part is the eternal life with God in heaven. This is made possible, as I, as I just said, because of his sacrifice on the cross. 2 Corinthians says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through 
Christ. No matter how good we think we are, we can never do enough to earn a place in God's kingdom. So, so Jesus does what we cannot do. He lives the perfect life that we cannot live. And then he dies in our place and experiences the separation and punishment that we deserve so that we can live with God forever in heaven. In this life, this life in heaven that we look forward to, that we read about, that we, that we think about, it's a great and, and it's a wonderful thing, but it's only, part, it's only part of the life Jesus came to give us. Because the second part is a rich and satisfying life that we can live right now. And it's taken me a little while. It's taken me a little while to get here tonight, but it's because I really believe in order for us to understand and appreciate the life that God has for us now, we have to understand and appreciate the upside-down way of God, at least a little bit. Because if this is the way we see God work in the Old Testament, and if this is the way that we see God work in the New Testament, and if this is the way we see God work in his own life, in the life of Jesus, then we have to understand that this is the way we're going to see God work in our lives as well. This means this rich and satisfying life that Jesus wants us to have is going to appear upside down in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of the culture around us. But, but it is in fact the most rich and satisfying life we could ever experience, more so than anything we could ever come up with on our own. Now, there are many Many blessings that Jesus gives us, many, many ways he works in our lives. And what I want to do tonight is highlight three things that Jesus gives us in this life right now that I believe are more substantial than anything else. Jesus gives us value, Jesus gives us purpose, and Jesus gives us hope. And I'm going to spend the rest of our time together looking at these three things. Number one, Jesus gives us value. It's no surprise that we live in a culture where value is defined by the things of this world, things tangible in this world. A couple of really easy examples. Uh, both men and women, you're judged on your appearance. We're judged by how attractive we are. And if we don't fit into whatever category people describe as valuable then we can feel unworthy. We can feel less than, like we're not good enough. Another one, people are judged by their, their talents. You know, the best athletes, they're given special treatment. They're given special privileges. They, they get a louder voice when it comes to issues they believe in. And those are just a couple of re real easy examples, but we know that there are so many more that we could comb through because this, this is true for people who are wealthy, those who are in positions of leadership and power. It's even true for people who are just... I don't know if you want to call it lucky enough to be born into a family with a recognizable name. But not only does Jesus give us all value, inherent value, because we are all of us created in the image of God. But the way that he weighs and measures value is upside down compared to the world around us. It means it's available to everyone. We read this in the book of James. For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. 
If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Now, this is a great example. It really is because what we see in this story, it just makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, think about it. If you were having some kind of party and someone famous walked in, well, I'll say it like this. Someone famous that you wanted to walk in, someone that you liked or wanted to meet, it would make sense. It would make sense for you to give them some kind of special attention. But James reminds us that we, all of us, have value and we should not discriminate by valuing people differently like the world does because God does not do that. When you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus places value on on the people that society likes to marginalize and push to the edges. I mean, the words in James remind me of the words Jesus says in Luke 13, 30. And note this, some who seem least important now will be the greatest then. And some who are the greatest now will be least important then. What's he talking about? What's the then that he's referring to? It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of God. I mean, what, is this, what does this tell us about value? What does this teach us? It tells us that the things that make people important in this world, the things that our society and culture values, they don't carry the same weight in God's eyes. And this means that we don't have to endlessly prove ourselves because our value, it's never based on how we look or where we work or how many followers we have or how much money we have or how much power we wield or anything that this world uses as a measuring stick in a way to to separate people into categories. The Bible lets us know that all of us are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knows the number of hairs on our heads and that we are all created in his own image. Jesus turns things upside down because only through him are we given value all the time, no matter what. All the time, no matter what. No matter our family name, our bank account, our job, anything, anything you want to fill in there. Number two, Jesus gives us purpose. Jesus gives us purpose. And he turns, he turns the idea of purpose upside down because he makes it clear that, that a life of purpose doesn't lie in being true to ourselves or, or discovering things on our own. He says that a life of purpose, it is in fact a life not lived for ourselves. I mean, in Matthew's gospel, this is what he's saying to his, his closest followers, his friends. He says, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be the first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus turns the way to purpose upside down because our purpose is not actually about us. It's not actually about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about becoming our best selves. It's not about fulfilling all of our hopes and dreams. 
it's becoming more and more like Jesus. John the Baptist says, he must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. And think about it, when, when, when Jesus becomes greater and greater to us, and we live like him more and more, that means that we're able to echo his words in our own lives, and we're able to serve and not be served. Because our purpose is not to build ourselves up, but to build others up and to serve others. Now I want to kind of I want to pause here just real quick before we move on to the third, the third thing. Because I want to point out something that I think that we can kind of gloss over sometimes, or, or at least maybe not appreciate as much as we should. And it's this fact that there is great freedom, great freedom in the value and purpose that Jesus gives us. And this is something that honestly, it seems upside down to so many people because to so many people, there is a direct connection between the church and rules and Christianity and rules. And so when we talk about freedom, it doesn't seem to make sense. But when our value and our purpose are not found in the things of this world, then we experience a freedom that many people, many people, they can only dream about it. And this is because when we experience the rich and satisfying life that Jesus wants for us, we're no longer controlled by the things that the world values. We aren't controlled by our beauty, our appearance, and so we're not slaves to the mirror anymore. You don't have to be controlled by your bank account anymore. You don't, have to, you don't have to look at the stock market every day and just let the ups and downs of that determine the ups and downs of your life. You'll still have good days and bad days. You'll still have ups and downs. But, but when you have a good day, you don't puff out your chest and let your pride swell because you know what? It's not about you. It's not about you. And the same thing is true when you have a bad day. When that happens, you don't crawl into, into deep despair and hopelessness because your value, your purpose, there are things that can never be touched. Not by a recession, not by a rejection, not by anything, anything in this world. And I, re I really wish that I could talk more about this because it's so important for us to recognize and realize the freedom, the freedom that we have in Jesus we need to move on to our third point. Number three, Jesus gives us hope. Jesus gives us hope. This is perhaps the most upside down thing that we see. It should be no surprise, no surprise to us that since the value that Jesus gives us is not found in the things that the world values and the purpose that Jesus gives us is not found in, in the way that our world finds purpose, so neither is the hope that he offers. I said it's the most upside down thing we see because it's the gospel. It's the gospel. And the gospel is the apex of the upside down way of God. I mean, think of it like this. In just this simple of a way to think about it, Jesus came to earth so we could go to heaven. I mean, the grace of God, the grace of God, it runs counter to our world. It doesn't make sense. I mean, you have people, you have people who think that, that someone, they should just get what they deserve. You know, that's, that's, it's fair. It's right. Whether it's good or bad, they've earned it. You may not like it, 
but you made your bed, now you have to sleep in it. You know, you have people like that. Then you have other people, and, you know, we'll be generous. They're a little bit more lenient. They're more merciful. Uh, you know, they think that we should be softer and nicer to people. And so what you could say about them is, is they think people should, should not get what they deserve. You know, even if you do this or do that, well, take it easy on you. But how many people, how many people really think that someone should get more than they deserve? More than they deserve. How many people say that they want to not only not punish someone after, you know, a life of poor choices and crime and failure, but to actually honestly reward them? I mean, think about that. And this, this is something that, that even, even some Christians can struggle with, especially when we think of ourselves as really upright and moral and good people. But this is the grace of God. Getting what we do not deserve, what we have not earned. We celebrate Good Friday because as we read in Romans, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. The hope, the hope that the world offers, it tells us to cling to our rights, our desires, our thoughts. And, and when we do these things, then we'll be fulfilled. Then we'll find satisfaction because, you know, we're being true to ourselves and no one can take that away from us. Jesus, Jesus says, let it all go. Let it all go and cling to me. And then and only then will you have freedom. And then and only then will you have hope. Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Jesus, he spoke these words as a way to to draw people to him, people who had been living under, under the burden of the Jewish law for so long, people who'd, who'd worn themselves out trying to be perfect, trying to follow all the rules so that they could be good enough. And the truth is these words, they probably don't have the same direct application to you and me today because we're not living under the weight of the Old Testament law. But, but there is still truth and there is still invitation in these words. I mean, you may not be wearing yourself out trying to keep all of the aspects of the Jewish law perfect, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that you aren't burdened. That doesn't mean that you aren't carrying around a weight all the same. I mean, because that's true. Anyone, anyone who is trying to sort of redeem themselves by attempting to give themselves value and to give themselves purpose and, and to be their own source of hope is living a life that's weary and burdensome. If all of your life is an attempt to be good enough and smart enough and, and rich enough and famous enough, what you're going to find quickly, quickly, if you're honest with yourself, is that it will never be enough. What Jesus does is he invites us, all of us. Matthew eleven twenty eight starts with these words, come to me, all of you. He invites all of us to come to him for a rich and satisfying life, which means both a perfect eternal life in heaven with God and a life right now with value and purpose and hope. He shows us the upside-down way of God because 
He doesn't just tell us about this different way to live. He turns things on its head. And the salvation that he offers is at the heart of that because Jesus tells us, he tells us in a variety of different ways that the only way for us to rise is for him to fall. We experience victory through defeat, strength through weakness, and we have hope for the future because of what happened in the past. As we near the close of our time together tonight, we're going to take a moment and remember the events that happened to make this day good. And listen, just like we've been talking about, just like we've been talking about, it's an upside-down way of thinking. I hope you realize that. Because only through the power of God, only through the power of God could we gather together tonight and remember an innocent man who was betrayed, tortured, and executed, and then say it was good. But the greatest aspect of the gospel message, which is the resurrection of Jesus, could never have happened without the death of Jesus. And that's why we're here tonight, to remember and celebrate our good shepherd who sacrifices his life for us. And we're going to have our time of communion together uh, right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead this. This is something that we're all going to do together as one body. Uh, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians the words that Paul wrote as a way to guide us in our time of communion. So if you want to participate in this uh, with us together, please go ahead and, and prepare that by pulling out the, the cracker, the bread. I'll give you a moment, and then I'll read. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can open the juice. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for the upside down way you work in our world and in our lives. Help us to be mindful of that, to not only be mindful of that, but to celebrate it and to look for the ways that we can be different. Not for the sake of just being different and standing out, but for the opportunity that it gives us to be more like Jesus. We love you. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.